Hello everyone, God bless, I hope you're doing well, welcome back to another sermon, first of all I just want to say there may be some background noise during this, I'm sorry there's not much I can do about that, um, we ask what I got to say for the start of this, so let's just pray and then get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you've done for me in my life, for the blessings you've given me, the family, the friends, the warmth, the shelter, the food, the water and most of all Lord, for dying on the cross for my sins, though I did not deserve it. I ask you to please help me and guide me on the path of life. Help me to make sure I don't stumble and fall. And if I do stumble and fall, Lord, I ask you to please pick me back up and help me to continue walking again. And I ask you also to extend this out to anyone listening and anyone else in the world who needs it, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, so a bit of a longer one today. It's basically, it's about the... Um, the law. So I'd like you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the fifth chapter, verses, uh, verse 17, sorry. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And another word that often used there instead of destroy is abolish. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about the law? This is something that can cause a great deal of uncertainty among a lot of people. One of the most common misinterpretations of this passage is that because Jesus said he didn't come to abolish or destroy the law, that means that the Old Testament laws are still to be followed exactly the same way um, as they were written, basically. Now, as you can probably tell by my usage of the word misinterpretations, I believe that this viewpoint is flawed and unbiblical. So, what is the truth? Well, to answer that, we are going to have to go all the way back to the beginning, quite literally. The book of Genesis is a very eventful book. One of the events uh, that happens in the book, probably one of the most famous, is the story of creation and the Garden of Eden. Basically, God creates the entirety of existence. Then, he creates inhabitants for said existence. These inhabitants are called Adam or Adam, which is the Hebrew word for man, and Eve, which is based on the fact that she is the mother of all living. So God puts Adam and Eve inside the Garden of Eden, which is basically heaven on earth, paradise on earth, however you want to phrase it. Now obviously because it's paradise there's going to be some rules. Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 through to 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. This is the first example of a rule in the Bible. That is to say, this is the first time God has imposed a moral standard onto humanity with the guarantee of punishment should that standard not be met. It is included very early on in the Bible, in the second chapter of the first book, in fact. This shows us just how important upholding moral standards is to God. And the next part of the story, unfortunately, shows just how unimportant it is to us and to humanity. Now stay with me here because uh, this reading is going to be a fairly long one. So we go to the book of Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 19. That's right, that's, we're, we're reading a lot now. 
Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Ye hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as a gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took up the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed uh, fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. And I hid myself, and he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In the sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I command thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall um, it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Sorry for the long reading, but I felt it was important that you heard all of it. To summarise um, what happened in that passage, basically the devil disguised himself as a snake and convinced Eve to eat of the tree. And it's important that we use that word, convinced. See, he didn't trick her. He didn't coerce her. He appealed to her selfish and sinful desire and it worked. And it worked on Adam too. And then Jesus comes down, and I say it was Jesus because we know that any time God appears in the flesh, it is Jesus, Old Testament and New. And when Jesus comes down, they hid from him, and he calls out to them and asks them um, where they are. Uh, now, why does he do? Why does he do this? Surely he should know, considering he's God. He's meant to be all knowing, right? Well, in truth, he does know. He just wants to give Adam and Eve a chance. To own up to what they did. Why? 
because he is a loving, a kind and a fair God. So Adam and Eve call uh, to God and say, well, we're hiding from you because we're naked. To which Jesus responds, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? Now, he didn't ask this out of curiosity because he had no idea and he wanted to know. He already knew full well. He knew the answer. He asked this because he wanted them to realise what they had done. He wanted them to know. And he wanted them to take responsibility for their sins. They don't. Instead, Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the snake. It's everyone's fault but mine, basically. That's how they see it. Now, this is actually a reflection on us, my friends. You see, a lot of the time when we sin, we tend to say something like, Oh, if it, was, if it hadn't been for the devil, if he hadn't tempted me, I wouldn't have done this. Or, oh, it's all Satan's fault that I sinned. Oh, he's been tempting me. Oh, it's horrible. It's all on him. In truth, it is our own fault. Sure, it's not nice when Satan tempts you. He's very good at it. I mean, of course he's very good at it. He's been doing it for a very long time. But the blame still ultimately lies with you as it did with Adam and Eve. He cannot force you to sin. He cannot trick you into sinning. He can merely suggest it, tell you that it is a good idea, and whether you listen to him or not is your own, basically your own decision. So, now a sin has been committed. God's perfect moral standard has not been met. His law has been broken. And so it is time for God to punish those who broke the law. Among the punishment was that Adam and Eve punishment sorry was that Adam and Eve would be thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Now at this stage it would have been very easy for God to say that's it, I'm done with humanity, get lost, I never want to see you again, I've washed my hands yet, get out of here, you failed, go away. But that's not what God uh, does, because that's not who God is. Instead he stays with them. He guides them and when the time comes he guides their ancestors and everyone else to come. This is a brilliant indicator of God's character. He punishes those who commit wrongdoings but he won't abandon them. He is tough, he is fair, and he is loving. Speaking of uh, punishments, there are two major instances of God punishing sinners in Genesis. These are the stories of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah as well as Noah's Ark. It's important to note that both of these stories take place before the time of Moses and thus before the giving of the Ten Commandments from God to Moses. So surely these punishments were unfair, right? I mean, the people in the times of Sodom and Gomorrah and of the, the times of the flood, they had no idea that what they were doing was wrong, right? They had no idea what sin was, right? They had no concept of morality. Well, no, not right. If we turn to the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 12, uh, 12 through to 16, it says, For as many as have sinned without law, shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts." their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So God's law is in our hearts and in our conscience from the moment of our birth. God creates us and he plants them in there inside of us. Even if you don't 
have a physical object like a Bible or two tablets with Ten Commandments written on them telling you that something is wrong, your hearts, they still know and they still guide you to make the right decision. We can see this throughout the development of humanity. There are some things that have always been seen as right and some things that have always been seen as wrong. For example, murder is almost never seen as right in any major society. And you might think, oh no, well there's instances like, for example, I don't know, let's say Nazi Germany. So a lot of, there's obviously a lot of murder going on there. Well see, that was the thing. A lot of people didn't see it as murdering other people the excuse wasn't we shouldn't kill people except this group of people it's okay to kill them the excuse is more along the lines of these so-called people these jews aren't actually people therefore the don't murder standard doesn't apply to them and you can see other uh, examples of this anytime murder became sort of prominent in any sort of society it was the belittling of these people to make them be seem like less than people so that the don't murder people standard didn't apply to them rather than just getting rid of the don't murder standard um, overall. Obviously this isn't the case with every single individual but it's a general rule. So God was justified when he flooded the earth as well as when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God himself even said that if there was anyone in the two cities that was righteous he would spare the entirety of the two cities just for those righteous people's sakes. This brings us on to Exodus. After Moses has led the newly freed Jews through the desert for a while, God gives him 613 commandments or laws. Now, in the year 1646, the Westminster Confession of Faith divided these laws into three categories. These were civil, moral and ceremonial. Now, you've likely heard these three terms being used by people who try to explain why some of the Old Testament laws still apply and others don't. We'll get into that in just a second. However, I'm not going to be using these standards. I'm going to be using something else. You'll see in a minute. It'll make sense. For now, let's go back to Jesus. You see, when Jesus came to the earth um, around the year zero, because we don't actually know when he properly came, but it would, would have been around that time, he had to come a particular way. That's because of the way the old covenant was structured. It required certain things from both parties involved. Those parties being man and God. Now man, or in other words the Jews, could not fulfil their end of the bargain. And so they often broke the covenant by sinning. Their whole end, or their whole part of the deal was that they were meant to live sinless lives. God on the other hand had no problem fulfilling his end of the deal. The inability of man to live sinlessly was the only reason the Old Covenant had lasted so long. So when Jesus came down, he could not come down fully God because then he wouldn't have been able to complete the covenant because he would have been completing it for God rather than for man. So he came down as fully God and fully man. This allowed him to fulfil both sides of the covenant at the same time by living a sinless life and dying without ever having sinned. So therefore, both man and God had basically fulfilled their end of the bargain through one man. This meant that the covenant could be gotten rid of without abolishing it, because abolishing it or destroying it would mean that one party hadn't properly held up their end of the deal. That's not what happened. We'll use an analogy to describe this. Imagine 
you are contracting a bricklayer and you ask him to build a certain amount and you say once you build a certain amount i will pay you now let's say he builds a certain amount and then you pay him the certain amount that you promised him the contract is done you no longer owe him that money he no longer owes you that service you haven't abolished the agreement you haven't gotten rid of it you haven't destroyed it you have merely fulfilled it it's the same here god didn't abolish the agreement he fulfilled it both parties did what they said they needed to do and now they don't need to do it anymore because it's done in the same way a bricklayer doesn't need to build all what basically rebuild everything he's just done again and again and again and you don't need to keep paying him money again and again and again you both fulfilled what you promised you would do it's not abolished it's not destroyed it is fulfilled the old covenant was fulfilled so now the covenant was fulfilled and it was time for a new covenant this is the faith covenant which is the one christians live by today this covenant says that while there is still sin god defeated it he stepped on the um head of the serpent in so doing he was himself bitten which is a reference to back in genesis you'll remember all you need to do to get into heaven now is to have true faith in god now this doesn't just mean believing that he existed or thinking you know what there's probably some sort of higher power in there out there or something like that sure why not no it means having true faith in god loving god having a relationship with god it is very personal and very serious not just some thing you happen to believe and now we get to the most contentious matter concerning the new covenant that is the issue of what is a sin now what is still a sin what isn't a sin anymore what's a sin now that wasn't a sin before well to answer the question we just need to look to the old to the new testament sorry now which part of the new testament which book all of them all of us simply put if the new testament condemns it then any old testament verse condemning it is still valid now a lot of the old testament verses about what to do with people who commit these sins aren't valid but the verses about this thing being bad itself are valid if you get me so anything about stoning isn't still valid but the thing saying that it is sinful is valid basically to put it into simple enough terms however there are also examples like i said before of things that didn't used to be sins uh, that are now sins an example of this being divorce and of course there are examples of things that were sins so an example of something that was a sin that isn't a sin anymore would be certain kinds of food that you eat. Jesus himself said it's not what goes into the body that defiles a man, what comes out of him in terms of his speech. Because what goes into you, it doesn't really matter. It can defile the body, it can't defile the soul. So it can't properly defile the heavenly body or the man, if you get me. But what comes out of you comes from the heart. It's what you say, it's what you believe, it's what you do, and so on. And that's what defiles your soul. All in all, if you want to know if something is still a sin, you need to see what the New Testament has to say about it. Another example being, say, divorce. The New Testament says, yes, it is a sin. It is a sin to get divorced. However, the Old Testament doesn't say that. The Old Testament says it's fine. And um, Jesus says this is because of a concession with the hard hearts of the jews and this is a thing as well the old testament was very uh, the old testament sorry old covenant was heavily compromised there was a lot of input from the jews say so god was not for divorce and for a lot of things 
but the Jews really wanted it. So because it was still early days and it's sort of like stepping stones really, he needed to basically get the foundation built before he could build the proper house, if you get me. He needed to lay down the foundation. Obviously, you can't live on a foundation. You can live in a house, you can't really live in a foundation. But you also can't live in a house without a foundation. So if he had tried to set up the proper New Testament covenant as we know it back then, it probably would have failed. So, of course, he had to set up the foundation first, which was not very good. The same way a foundation of a house, sorry, just to explain this, is not very good at being a living space by itself, well, with the walls and the roof and everything. The Old Testament covenant was not very good at guiding people towards God's proper law. It did for the time, and he kind of held people to those standards at that time, but it wasn't what he truly wanted in the end. So when he felt his people were ready, that's when Jesus came down, that's when the old law was fulfilled, and the new law came into effect. And that is the law that we live by today. So that is why there were some changes. And that is why there are some things in the Old Testament law and the Old Covenant law that God did not like. Because there was a lot of influence from the Jews who just wanted to basically make it their own law and wanted to do their own things. And that's where a lot of things like stoning and stuff comes from. It doesn't really come from God. A lot of it comes from the Jews trying to take control and trying to have compromise. So, that's the end of that. Now we're going to pray and then I will end off this sermon. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the sacrifice you made for me on the cross, um, for sending your son down to die for me on the cross, uh, despite the fact that I did not deserve it. Lord, you did this because of how much you love me and how much you love everyone in the world. And I thank you as well, Lord, for the grace covenant, for allowing it to be a matter of faith and not works, because I know I could never ever work my way to being a good person and I know no one else could either apart from your son Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us thank you for this Lord I ask you to please help me to ensure that I use this gift properly that you have given me and I ask you to please guide me and help me in everything that I do spiritually Lord help me in my own life help me with how I treat other people with how I talk to other people with how I preach help me to preach your word rather than my own beliefs Help me to know when I am wrong and figure out the truth and help me, Lord, and guide me. And if I fall, Lord, and if I stumble because of my sin, I ask you to pick me up and forgive me and help me to cease my sin. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, uh, that's sort of it for now. I do hope you enjoyed this sermon. Uh, thank you for listening and God bless you all.